Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. I'm Joe Lynch. I'm your host. And today we're talking with Gary Sostak, and the topic is managing logistics for the world's largest company. Welcome, Gary. Joe, it's great to be with you. Thanks. How are you? Very good. Very good. So, Gary, please introduce yourself and your company. Yep. Gary Sostak, and I'm the uh, president and founder of Elemental Logistics, LLC. Uh, We assist 3PLs with their bid packages to uh, corporations, and I also work with, uh, our team works with corporations who don't really see supply chain as their core activity and need to work on their timing, their processes. If they're looking to change a 3PL or go into a new market, decide how they're going to go about doing that. Those are some of the elements that our company gets involved with. Sounds good. God knows there's a need for all of those things. So Gary, before we get into the topic of managing logistics for the world's largest company. Tell us a little bit about your background. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? That kind of stuff. I grew up in New York and I uh, graduated from a New York Institute of Technology. I uh, got a part-time job, interestingly enough, while I was putting myself through school at JFK Airport. And all of a sudden, a kid who was kind of cloistered saw the whole world of cargo at that time. The world of businesses, of stuff, of material going through from Argentina, from Chile, from North America, from Asia, and all of this commerce. And it really opened my eyes. And I decided whatever I'm going to graduate in, this is the field I'm going to be in. And I dedicated myself to it. And that took me, uh, That's from that start to that as a part-time job, Joe, that took me years later around the world, over 30 countries, working on various projects in and around uh, logistics and supply chain. So where did you start your career? Actually, talk about your career from the beginning and give us a little synopsis from beginning to right now. Yeah, right out of college, I went to work in Atlanta and I went to work in a a logistics company there. And then from there, um, I spent a lot of the rest of my career, if not most of it, after a short spell in New Orleans, which was also in the oil and gas business, I moved to Houston. And if you live in Houston, Joe, you're in one of three industries. You either work for the port in and around the port, which, by the way, the Port of Houston now is uh, the largest port of the United States by tonnage of any port. Or you work in the medical profession as a medical center has got 100,000 people working in it. Or you're in the oil and gas business. And I started to work in supply chain in the oil and gas business. And there's two different types of things that you do in that business. I know you spent a lot of your time in automotive, and you know a lot about that. In the oil and gas business, you're either working in the resupply where there are oil fields all around the world and they need to be resupplied with their material, purchase orders, air freight, ocean freight, or you're involved in a, a new venture, a project business. We're gonna, a refinery is going to get put up someplace and it's a 24-month project. So that's what you do when you're in Houston and that's, what, that's the career path I followed. I took a little detour and at one point when I was working for a 3PL, I was in the, uh, I did a lot of work in uh, the retail business for uh, the large uh, big box retailers. And I was moving underwear out of Bangladesh 
and I was moving bras out of uh, out of uh, Solomon Islands. And during the Christmas season, it was crazy busy. That was for the big box stores, and even in the uh, in the couture business for Neiman Marcus. You know, uh, they have a Paris fashion show, and they've got thirty thousand dollar couture dresses. And it's sort of like that new model of car, Joe. They don't want it copied immediately, and so you had to secretly move a whole pile of these into their stores all over uh, the United States. So. You know, it's a far cry from uh, moving uh, blowout preventers to uh, the Middle East. So it sounds like you've uh, had quite the experiences. You know, they say, uh, been there, done that, got the hat. You got the hat, the T-shirt, and the mug. <laughs> and the uh, steel-toed shoes that are all worn out. Yeah. So, Gary, enough of our blather here. I want to tell us about the world's largest company. Who is it? Yeah. You know, if you live in Houston, everybody knows who they are. But, you know, if you don't live in Houston or or in Louisiana or Oklahoma or in Long Beach, California, you may not know. But it's Saudi Aramco, the national oil company of Saudi Arabia. Take Apple, Google, Amazon, General Motors, add them all up together, and they're not as big as Aramco. Wow. Say that again. <laughs> all right. One more time. Apple, Google. General Motors, Amazon, put them all together. They're not as big as Aramco. That's crazy. And they do oil and gas? Yeah. Every drop of oil that comes out of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, that's Aramco. All of the refineries that have refined product that goes that uh, get put out, that's Aramco. The largest producer of oil in the world is Saudi Arabia. All of that is refined and uh, taken out of the ground and moved around the world by Aramco. So they have, by that measure, they're the largest company in the world. And so they have, they have obviously operations in Houston that you worked at. Is that owned by the kingdom still? Yes. Actually, it's owned by the king. Every drop of oil in the kingdom is owned by the king. And Aramco is the company that the king has contracted with to manage oil of the all of the business. And so, yeah, that's the Middle East. But of course, there are subsidiaries and smaller companies all over the world that are part of Aramco. And my portion of it was at Aramco Services Company, which is based in Houston when I worked there. I worked there for 14 years. So this King job sounds like a pretty good gig. How do you go getting that job? As Mel Brooks said in his movie, I think it's good to be the king. (laughs) Really good. So tell us a little bit about your time at Aramco and some of the projects you worked on. You know, when I was at a cocktail party and somebody said to me, what does a Ramco services company do? Or I was in an elevator and I had nine floors to explain it. I said, Aramco does three things. A Ramco services company in the U.S. Number one, we find product, we find material, we find equipment that cannot be sourced locally. That's necessary. And then we ship it, buy it and ship it to get oil out of the ground. That's the first thing we do. Second thing that Aramco does, Aramco services company is that they find smart people from Colorado School of Mines at MIT and Harvard who are understood understanding of uh, what's the next technology, the next new thing. And Aramco Service Company hires them, moves them to Saudi Arabia to get oil out of the ground. And the third thing is, I think this is not just true in oil and gas, but in, in most instances, Joe, you know, uh, the United States is the great laboratory of the, of the greatest new thing, right? I mean, Google was an idea in some guy's head 15 years ago. Amazon was an idea in Jeff Bezos' head. These, some of the best ideas and the best, smartest people in the world are here in the U.S. And so Aramco Services Company wants to find those people 
in the specifically in the oil and gas and refining business, hire them and move them to Arabia to get more oil out of the ground. So it's one, two, three. So my part of it was number one, work with the procurement people who are buying the material, thousands, tens of thousands of purchase orders all over the Western hemisphere, not just the United States, and then decide what it is, what the time frame is, how to move it, how to organize it, and then how to get it over to the kingdom. So it wasn't just gas stuff, was it? No. So Aramco supports schools, uh, hospitals. They have refineries. So it's not just the out in the field, the pipelines to, to get the oil out of the extract the oil. There are tens of thousands of expats there that need to be serviced. So it was an oil and gas company, an oil and gas purchasing, yes, but it was moving all kinds of material. There was a, at, at one point, we were moving all kinds of material to support the, there was a widespread flu vaccine and they ran out of um, immunizations and our people in, uh, in procurement were uh, buying up material to uh, help with the crisis that took place there. So it's a, it's a private-public partnership and we were involved in all of that. I guess that's part of being the king. You've got lots of responsibilities, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, we uh, we joked it's good to be the king, but the responsibilities truly are enormous. You are you're a river to your people. Yeah. So, what was some of the notable projects you worked on while you were at Ramco? Well, one day we got a call from a group that said, "Hey, we have a uh, we have a prototype oil rig." that we're about to buy and it's in Brady, Texas. And we've been working on it for a year and we've got guys over there that have been looking at it. And by prototype, it was a one of a kind, Joe, that was able to, you know, normally you, uh, when you set up a rig out in the field, you put up, uh, you set up the rig where you think the oil is going to be, you run pipe down into the ground. If you're not exactly right, you do some horizontal piping and drilling. This was a prototype where the rig itself would actually move. And it was an 11-story rig. And they said, we want you to take it apart and pick it up in Brady, Texas, take it all apart and move it to Arabia. Well, it was 11 stories tall. It was 2,500 parts, pieces, Joe. Wow. So I've heard it costs a small fortune to move those rigs. So they'll move like an oil rig from one town to the next town, right? Yeah. So this rig, it was a brand new, it was a prototype. It was only one of its kind, right? We went up to Brady, Texas. Do you know where Brady, Texas is, Joe? No, no. Nobody knows where Brady, Texas is. <laughs> you go to Waco and you take a left. It's, in a, it's 350 miles from the port of Houston. However, so we, we walked up. We did a survey of it. We worked with the engineers. We took it apart into 2,500 pieces. took seven days to box it and crate it. But it had two pieces that couldn't be changed. One of them was 93 feet long, and the other one was uh, 170 tons. It was 19 feet tall. Couldn't get under bridges, couldn't do this. We had to do a, a whole road plan with the Texas Department of Transportation. You know, a three-day truck to, was going to take 11 days to get it to the port. We uh, turned off lights in cities. We had to raise wires. We had to cut down trees and towns, small Texas towns. That was a fun project. <laughs> well, so now you guys worked with the 3PLs? Your 3PLs did that for you? What we did was we did it ourselves. We hired everybody directly ourselves. So we hired the guys that were going to do the bucket trucks, right, for, to raise the wires, the, the transportation companies. We did hire somebody to file a road plan with the Texas DOT, but it was, uh, it was kind of our baby. So you're your own 3PL when you were at Aramco. Is their own 3PL? Up until, uh, up until July of this year, the answer was yes. 
<laughs> so tell me more about that. That's when some things uh, happened. Why was Aramco doing its own business? Aramco cut, made their own deals with, directly with the cargo carriers, the airlines, became a non-IATA carrier, meaning all of the airway bills were cut by Aramco as if Aramco was the 3PL. As a matter of fact, one of the innovations that was done 15, 18 years ago was to start working on electronic airway bills before anybody else was doing it, before everybody, while everyone was still doing paper. The steamship lines, the contracts were direct, so the Aramco cut the bills elating and did all of the uh, carrier negotiation, so acting as Aramco acted as their own NVOCC. What happened, Joe, to change that was that a number of businesses, uh, the business model changed, whereby, for example, all of the hospitals that got supported were tens of thousands of purchase orders that Aramco was handling. Well, Saudi Aramco made uh, went into a joint venture with Johns Hopkins, and so all of the hospital support disappeared. And some other businesses, and as globalization has taken place, a lot of non, non-essential essential things, but things that could be sourced locally, a lot more things can be sourced locally. You know, 25 years ago, you couldn't go to Ikea and buy furniture in the Middle East, and of course now you can, and a lot more things you can buy there than you could before. So the volume of uh, purchase orders and uh, declined to such where Aramco no longer became the market maker, and it didn't make economic sense to do it this way anymore. That was when the, uh, the decision uh, we, we took the decision to look to do a more traditional 3PL model. So that's this is uh, this is the interesting part for many of my listeners, I think. Is so so you were basically in effect going out to select a 3PL to replace yourselves as the 3PL, and so now you're picking a 3PL for the world's largest company. How did you go about that? Tell us a little bit about that. So it, it took 15 months and it was a step-by-step process. And I think a lot for a, something that's important for your listeners to understand is that if, you're, if you are a 3PL, if you are a salesperson, these are not quick sells and quick kills for you. You're going to have to hang in there and you're going to have to, your management has to understand that too, that it's a process. So I put together a core team of six people four within our organization, and I hired two outside people because I didn't want to have groupthink. And the first thing we did was we put together what we thought were the essential elements that we wanted to outsource. We came up with 45 items. So what were some of them? Well, very traditional things. We wanted the material to be received in a warehouse from all of our uh, suppliers by the 3PL in such a way that needed to be labeled in in a certain way. We are an SAP company, uh, ERP-based, and so the requirement was to have the uh, 3PL operate in two systems, their own receiving system as well as Aramco's uh, SAP system. There had to be a turnaround of so many days for uh, air freight and so many days for ocean freight. Packing and crating had to be done in a certain manner. We had specifications for that. Hazardous material, of which there's a lot, there had to be, there was a process and a procedure for that. There is a lot of material that requires export licenses. Because uh, not everything that leaves the United States, the government, either the Department of Census or the State Department, like wants to know about it. So they had to be well versed in uh, in how to uh, how to do licensing and how to manage that. So those were kind of the, those are examples of kind of the things. So you and your team put together a list, and this is this is what you expected from your future three PL. Right. So that was step one. Step two was a selection of three PLs that we wanted to look at. Aramco is a global company. This is going to be a North American contract. But there was an eye on if this were to work, once again, we were the experimental place, the smaller company for the parent. Let's find a company that if they were to work, they could also go global. 
They could do the business in the Middle East. They could do the business in Asia, in Europe, et cetera. So there's no mom pop. <laughs> no, no. And, you know, we had done uh, in Houston over a period of time, a lot of business with mom and pops who just grew up in the oil and gas business, you know, and I'm sure that you have that situation in Detroit where the, the three PLs are just completely wed to the automotive industry. Same thing that happened uh, in, in this case. So only globals got invited. So 11 globals got invited. So that's step one. Step two was then a job explanation meeting was conducted. That was all of the invitees, all of the three PLs were invited to come to a meeting. And the the whole bid process was explained at one time, at the same time, to all of the three PLs at the same time. So this way, nobody was, everyone got the same information correctly at the same time. That after the meeting, there were questions, of course, that came up. The questions went out, came into our contracting guy. And this is an important element, Joe. But once we decided that we were going to go out to bid, the logistics team no longer contacted the three PLs. That was done by the contracting department because there wanted to be um, no favoritism whatsoever. So anything that any communication that took place took place directly with the contracting rep that was in charge of this uh, this bid process. The whole bid process was run by the contracting guy. So the contracting guys, who was that? Your outside consultant? No, he was. He's an inside Aramco employee, but he's not. He is not part of the logis- procurement and logistics department. He'll do contracts for this, but then he'll do a software contract, or he'll do a contract for, uh, you know, water uh, a water contract. So he's a generalist, or he or she is a generalist, but they're the ones that then run it. And of course, when technical questions come up, they came to our bid review team to answer the questions. So are they more like a purchasing department, or are they legal? They're a contracting department. They're a separate entity. Of course, they work closely with the law department because legal questions obviously come up and they're versed with them. But it, contracting is a standalone company, a standalone part of the company. Okay, so continue on. So then out of the 11 global providers that were invited, eight responded to the bid. So then we get to step two. Step two was those 45 questions were all graded and weighted according to importance. And the bid review team decided which weight to apply to each one. And then individually, without discussing with other, the other team members, scored each response. So this was, and this is only on the technical deal. We haven't gotten, even gotten to the pricing yet. We're only talking about technical qualifications. By the way, the bidders had to submit two separate packages. One was a technical evaluation and one was the commercial. And they were in separate packages. So commercial had all the pricing in it. That hasn't even been looked at yet. That's locked away in a, in a locked room. And the only thing the bid review team now is looking at are the technical proposals. Are they technically qualified to handle the business? So interestingly enough, 70% was pass, fail. And we, interestingly enough, all four of the bid review team members came upon the same four semifinalists. So there wasn't going to be an argument or a discussion or a problem where we had uh, eight responses and uh, everything was all over the map. That didn't take place. So there were some clear winners. There were four clear winners. Now, we did have two consultants, I mentioned, Joe, and they also got the bid and they also scored, but they were non-voting. So in case that we couldn't come up with anything, we say, well, let's see what the consultants said, right? But that really wasn't necessary because we all all four of bid team members came to the consensus. So now we've got four finalists. Now we go to step two. Step two is a site visit. The bid review team conducted four site visits. Now, the site visits were really interesting, Joe. 
because, you know, everybody can put something down on paper, right? Then you actually go to their warehouse and their operation and see what it looks like. So I don't know about you, but in my house, I got a closet that if I open up the closet, things start falling on my head. One of the bidders, the four finalists, had a whole 70,000 foot warehouse that looked like that. <laughs> so did, so the, the uh, paper didn't match the reality of their warehouse. So the site visit was a, where we had a scoring. The site visit was pass fail. So at least one of them, that was, in, that was an easy elimination on, the, on those guys. So you're down to three. <laughs> down to three. We also then uh, disqualified another one. So now we're down to two. Wait, how did you disqualify another one? The other one was disqualified because of their hazardous material operation was not up to snuff. And you have to be careful, obviously. One of the critical aspects of exporting hazardous material is that it doesn't matter whether you have a freight forwarder or not. The shipper is the exporter of record. He's the responsible party, no matter what happens. Got so it. We had to be careful about that. So now we're down to two. With only two left, Joe, only then was the commercial proposals and the pricing looked at. And the pricing was only looked at with the two finalists. Why? And you can say, well, what if somebody else gave you a better price? You know, you only looked at two, you got 11. Well, why look at somebody's pricing if they're not technically qualified? I like that approach. So the numbers, the financing, the, the financial aspect was never considered until two companies passed through two hoops the original RFQ, and then the site visit. And only then were those two proposals opened. And then after that, it was clear, the low bidder wins of the two. And that's what happened. We'll get right back to the podcast in just a moment. If you sell transportation or logistics services, the Logistics of Logistics can help you sell more. Our customized program will help you understand your sales personality, including your strengths and blind spots, get more sales leads, and improve your communication and salesmanship. We can also position you as a recognized industry expert and help you reach your target audience. To learn more, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com. And now, back to the show. So how close were they, if you don't mind me asking? They were not close. Oh, wow. <laughs> I would have thought they'd be fairly close. They were not close. And uh, I really can't go into too much more about why they weren't no, I close. Understand. <laughs> but they weren't. So it was an obvious winner. And so what happened then, you know, after that, it required a uh, trip to the, uh, to the board to seek board approval to do this. Now, I need to back up for a minute and say, before this process even began, I had to go to the board, the company board, and talk about this process because it was such a fundamental, it's a fundamental disruptive shift. change, <laughs> a disruptive change in our in how we operate our business and our supply chain. And so board approval had to be sought to start the process. Then we went back to the board for a second time to get them to approve the bid slate. And then once it was completed, the finished product and all of the financing, the financial aspect of it went to the board as well. And then we had our contracting team and then someone from our from the finance department came in to actually run the numbers. The numbers were once again not run by the procurement and logistics department. The vice president of finance had a guy come and run all of the numbers to make sure that they made sense. And a five-year contract was going to deliver millions of dollars of cost savings and initiatives. And it was a slam dunk, really, from a financial point of view, it was very obvious that this was the way to go. So if you don't mind me asking, where's those cost savings coming? Well. There was a warehouse that Aramco ran 
that had a, a lease that was going to expire that was tens of thousands of dollars a month. That lease, that's no longer needed. The three, you're going to operate out of the 3PL warehouse. The employees that were working in the warehouse became redundant. So there was cost savings in the employee reduction. There was cost savings in the equipment, the forklifts, right? The maintenance, the OSHA compliance, the TSA compliance, all of those things that you had to have to run a warehouse safely and operated safely. The employees that worked in the warehouse, most of the Aramco employees in the United States are office workers. Well, you have to carry extra insurance when you have people working in a warehouse because a warehouse is one of, is designated as one of the 10 most dangerous places to work in a working environment. So the company was required to carry extra liability insurance, which it no longer had to carry. So there was a whole host. That, I think we identified something like 37 different items that were either going to be reduced or completely eliminated from a cost point. Nice, nice. So I'm sorry, your next step? So board approval was sought and approved to move forward to go to contract with the low bidder. Now the law department steps in, contracting step in. And this is where, once again, it's really important, I think, for your audience to know that this can be an easy process or it can be a horrible process. Generally speaking, it's in my experience, this part of it is never a good process because the upfront work in the original bid proposal wasn't done properly. What do I mean by that? The original RFP that went out was carefully, carefully done. That was what took six months of the 15 months, Joe, is that we put together that original bid very carefully with the understanding, with all of the legal requirements and things that we wanted to see done so that when it came time to actually do the contract, there wasn't any surprises that the 3PL was encountering. So something that has, in my experience, sometimes taken months, took three weeks. Oh, it's interesting. The uh, structured approach you used is, I mean, I've uh, worked with some companies, they go to that length. And I guess when you have the spend that you guys have, it makes sense. I think from us, I'm I'm thinking as a sales guy, how painful it is to work with us (laughs) with the process you just described, because you ideally as a sales guy, you don't have this process. You just get to come in and build that relationship and understand the requirements and make a pitch. No such luck with you guys. Well, yeah, I mean, I understand that. And that that's a uh, there are certain product lines and certain opportunities and things that it makes sense to do it that way. You just don't have time to do it. But when you're fundamentally disrupting and changing a process that that had taken place over a period of 35 and 40 years, the board wants to know about it. It's millions of dollars, actually, you know, eight figures of dollars. And so that you can't do that in a in a two week period of time. And so. Just to finish, I thought we were very clear in the job explanation meeting way back when that, you know, this is going to be a long process. And I think that's why, for example, we started with 11 and only eight decided to participate. I think three just didn't didn't appreciate the process or didn't feel like that they wanted to go through that process. And it's understandable because for a 3PL to go through this, it's going to cost a lot of money. All of those bidders had to put in a lot of time and effort and money into putting that bid together. And that's part of the postmortem process that uh, that we could talk about as well. That is not that what you just described with people dropping out. That is not unusual. I've ex- encountered something very similar with uh, a client I've been working with. And for whatever reason, there was tons of money potentially opportunity wise, 
But I think they said, oh, we can't we can't support this long process. And it tells you a little bit about the company. Maybe it's just not where they're at and business wise or maybe it doesn't fit. But it was surprising to all of us who were involved. So can, can you tell us who you picked or is that inappropriate? Since I'm no longer there, I think I better leave that. But it's a global company, and I think I better leave it at that. And I don't know that – probably check the Ramco Services Company website. Maybe I should have done that to see if actually they did an announcement on it. But, yeah. I understand. One of the hard things I have to say, Joe, is that, you know, Aramco had done business with a lot of smaller companies. And, of course, one of the cost savings elements was – one small mom and pop did hazardous material. One small mom and pop did packing and crating. One small mom and pop did this. And those, all of those relationships had to be um, terminated because all of that business got folded up into the, um, into the bid, to the winning bidder. That's painful. <laughs> and I have to say that the hardest, one of the hardest things for me personally was, and I made sure that I took every one of them out to lunch and thanked them. And I let them know, we let them know ahead of time that this is, we're in the middle of this. Here's where it's going. Didn't want to leave anybody by surprise or in a lurch. Some of those companies maybe have 50, 60 employees. And this, you know, you feel obligated to do the right thing by those companies. And uh, I have to say that was, um, that was one of the tougher parts of the whole process. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of the fact of doing business, but this doesn't make it any easier on those relationships. So, Gary, let me ask you next topic here. So, you picked this new 3PL. You went through this exhausting process. How did you manage your 3PL week to week, month to month, quarter by quarter? How do you, how did you manage? How did you measure? So, you could say they're meeting expectations or not meeting expectations. Yeah. This is now where the rubber meets the road. So incorporated in the contract were the metrics that were expected, specific, very specific metrics. How long does something from the time it's received on the docket get put away into your system? How many days is it between the time a material arrives that's in good shape to the time it gets exported out of the country? How many days by ocean? How many days by air? If there's a discrepancy or a problem or a box is crushed or material is missing, you know, we had every single one of those things measured. One of the great things about the ERP system, SAP, that Aramco employed is all of those things were measure, are measurable and absolutely quantifiable by time, by date stamp, and by which individual did it. That all of that was brought into the into the contract and was discussed up front during the job X meeting. So the other thing that happened is that most of us have lived through contracts that have uh, penalty clauses for non-performance. The other thing that was put into this contract were incentives, financial incentives, if the uh, on-time performance was exceeded. And by percentages, the better the percentage of performance was exceeded from the, uh, from the standard metric, the more money that came back to the 3PL at the end of the quarter. So there was an incentive to do well. Gary, one thing, and I, I totally understand why you have incentives and then I guess disincentives in that contract. I sometimes struggle with that because what I always want, if we, you know, whoever I'm working with, I want complete transparency and I don't want anybody to be fighting a metric. And I'm not saying this necessarily happens uh, in your case, but it can happen where somebody's really has an incentive to maybe cook the books a little bit to make the numbers better so they can get paid. And that's where I struggle. You know, if somebody says, hey, it's my job to make sure we meet this incentive, I potentially lose my job or lose my bonus if we don't get this incentive. So I'm going to do something that modifies a number. 
How'd you manage that? Yeah. So let me compare my experience with your experience and see if this is the case. In those kinds of situations where there is this real financial pressure to cook the books, most of the time, in my experience, the shipper is relying completely on data that's delivered by the 3PL or by the service provider. In this case, the service provider is required to enter the numbers into the Aramco SAP system. They have to keep two sets of two sets of books as it were. The SAP system that has logistics in it for Aramco cannot be doctored nor tinkered with. You made it objective. <laughs> it was not subjective. It's a hundred percent objective, so there was no opportunity. Yeah, we took that opportunity away and that just I think it adds the transparency that you're thinking we want to have between the two parties. Yeah, and again you're you're right. And so this has been my experience with transportation management systems. Everybody has a very sophisticated system and they say, "Oh, don't worry, we can just pull that information out of our system, download it into Excel." That has not been the case. Not I've worked with a lot of different 3PLs who th- think they can do that, who necessarily can't necessarily do that with their software. I think we're getting there. And I think a lot of the numbers can be done that way, but that's what we need. So I can say, yep, these are objective numbers, no opportunity for somebody uh, on the hot seat to uh, do something that's a little dishonest. 10 years from now, if you want to peer into the future, Excel will be a thing of the past in this kind of metric system. No one's going to use Excel any longer because it can be manipulated. You know, you, you might you might be able to pull down a data that's objective, somewhat objective from a TMS system. But the minute you put it in Excel, it's subject to a lot of other issues. Right. <laughs> right. So did you get like a weekly report? Did you have weekly meetings, monthly meetings? How how did you discuss how they were managing your business? Well, the first step is the uh, is the big bang when everything gets transferred over. And it doesn't matter how much you've planned, Joe, you know this. The first month, the first month and a half, six weeks, it's gonna, it's not gonna be optimal. It's definitely not gonna be optimal. And so you're, nobody gets hurt, nobody gets beat up for, uh, you know, the first month or so working out all of those issues. Then after that, then it's okay. Here we are. Let's now, let's start, let's start having regular reports and meetings whereby we're looking at what the objectives were, what the criteria is, and how's the performance. Right. It is uh, absolutely the thing that would that would give everyone the most delight would be that performance got exceeded and uh, a bonus gets paid. That would be the most delightful uh, outcome that we can have. I I think it's uh, embryonic now, so we'll have to see where that goes. But so far, so good. Well, that's good to hear. I know, uh, you know, when you put that much effort into the upfront, it's been my expectation. I just went through a project with a really good company, really good leadership, and they had the same approach you were using that really allowed them to understand the business and their 3PL's business and vice versa. And so when you did finally launch, you could say, yeah, I know this is going to work because we, we've got the right partner. And if you have the right partner, you can kind of work through a lot of the other issues. So after the contract was signed, it was 60 days before actually implementation took place. So there were weekly meetings and then phone calls within the weekly meetings to talk about all of those other things that took place. That was post-signature contract before the first box hit the 3PL's dock. There was a whole series of meetings with how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? So yeah, I mean, it took, Joe, as, as I said, it took 
from uh, Mother's Day a year ago to November just to have the job explanation meeting get all the bidders in a room. And then once the contract got signed, it took two months from the contract being signed to the first piece of cargo hitting the dock. Wow. You, you, <laughs> you know, and listen, it's totally understandable that not everybody has that kind of time, right? Not everyone does. But all I can say is, and I think it sounds like your experience is the same, the more time that you have up front, the more time that you work through it uh, in the beginning, it's so much easier to solve the problems then than when you're live and 15,000 uh, crates just hit your dock and you don't have a system ready. So, Gary, we didn't talk about this part. Was this your closing act at Aramco? It was. As a matter of fact, I retired from the company on July 31st. I was actually... I was actually going to leave a year ago because I was launching my own, I was going to launch my own company. But this project came up and I tell you, Joe, it was just too interesting and I had to stay to do it. And I felt like I owed it to the company because they've been extremely good to me. And it was a, it was a tremendous experience. We had a tremendous, I know you had to have had this experience where you work on a team and you've got a group together and you've got four or five people on the team and there's always dead wood on the team and you got to carry them, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, is this person ever going to do something? Are we ever? How are we going to get this off the dime if this team member is not performing? That was not the case at all. Everybody pulled their weight, and I think because everyone was excited about the project too and saw the benefit of it. Gary, when you mentioned dead wood, I uh, reminded me of like when you talk about crazy family members. If you, I always say every every family has some crazy crazies in it, and if somebody says. My family doesn't. And it's always kind of like, well, we might look in the mirror then. <laughs> so, so anybody who's saying, oh, <laughs> so if you're saying, yeah, there's no dead wood on this team, you go, oh, okay. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> Not that it's you, Gary. <laughs> you know, now that I'm gone, I may want to poll them. Maybe they can speak more freely. That's a good point, Joe. <laughs> I guarantee, I, I guarantee it's not you. So, um, Gary, this is, this has been fascinating. I mean, you really, you've peered into history and I thank you for sharing it with us, but tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days. Yeah. So, you know, retirement is not exactly a word, uh, you know, that I really understand. I'm, um, I'll talk about my company in a minute, but I'm, um, for the last four years, I've been teaching at the University of Houston uh, in the graduate program, the supply chain program. I'm a corporate fellow there. They've got a nice setup there where they have a, a in the supply chain group where they'll have a tenured professor and then they have a guy from real life and co-teach the class. And uh, I'm the guy from real life. So I'm doing that. That's a great way to go. It's uh, tremendous. And we've moved a lot of people from accounting and who are, who are accountants and, uh, and doing other things into supply chain, very smart people, because, you know, the professor and I would say, uh, we'd go, he'd say one thing and say, yeah, but what the book is wrong. You can't use that in co-term. That inco term won't work. What he, X works is no way to do run a business. So there was, there's that. I was just appointed in uh, July the president of the uh, Houston chapter of the Council of Supply Chain Management, the Houston Roundtable here. So we have our first meeting uh, in September on uh, blockchain. And then uh, the company that I uh, founded, uh, consulting partner, in is Elemental Logistics. We assist 3PLs with bid packages, much the same as we discussed here. And also corporations who may not have their eye sharply on supply chain, but now feel the need to. It's not a core activity of theirs or they don't perceive it as such. You and I know supply chain is everyone's core activity now. They just don't know it yet. That's our primary focus with our company, with 
those two uh, audiences. Well, it seems it seems like the process you just went through and led with your you and your team would make you a natural to be able to go help somebody select a new 3PL, especially if they're doing a lot of uh, international freight. Yeah, I think the focus, you know, the the complexities of international now are even more so than ever because of um, the sanctions that are going on in various places, the commodities that you have to keep in touch with. The, one of the biggest growth areas in this area, Joe, is trade compliance. You know, uh, one of the pe- per- people on the bid review team I had was a trades compliance person. So there is... Um, there's a real need for companies to understand that. Just because you're you have a product and you're exporting it to one country, that doesn't necessarily mean you get a free hand exporting it to another one. You need to know what the compliance issues are. I work with a company that does business all over the world, and trade compliance is a very a big challenge. And to get your arms around it is not a one-time thing; it's an all-the-time thing. You you as soon as you think you got it, it's the the next next uh, increase in security. So it's a it's a big deal. <laughs> Well, and every week now we're finding, you know, you may be able to export certain commodities to Russia, for example. But one of the things you can't at the at the present time, as we're talking today, is anything that's resolved re- revolves around fracking equipment is not permitted to go to, to Russia. So you could sell fracking equipment all over the world, but not to Russia because of the sanctions that are involved. Now, that could be taken lifted tomorrow or it could be increased. So that's right to your point where it's an everyday thing, that trade compliance. Yep. Gary, this has been really fascinating. I really appreciate you taking the time to share with us what you've learned. And that's quite a bit. So thank you so much. Any closing remarks? Yeah. If anyone wants to get in touch with me, do you mind if I just... Please do. I guess in your notes. Yeah. My email address is gsostack, so S-O stack, S-T-A-C-K, at elementallogistics.com. Any of your um, listeners would want to get in touch with me, please feel free. You can also get in touch with me through the um, CSCMP, the Council of Supply Chain Management Houston website, cscmp.org slash Houston. And uh, great to be on your show. Really, yep. um, really appreciate the time today. Gary, what I'll also do is I'll put your LinkedIn profile in the transcripts so that people can reach out to you. That'd be great, Joe. Thanks so much. Thank you, Gary. And uh, thank all of you for listening to the podcast. Uh, your continued support is very much appreciated. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logistics of logistics.com.